Hello, Monetization Nation. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jeff Warnick. Jeff is a Portfolio Executive Director and Marketing Lead at Bristol Myers Squibb, a $140 billion pharmaceutical company that manufactures prescription drugs for cancer, HIV and AIDS, heart disease, hepatitis, arthritis, and psychiatric disorder, among others. Passion-driven marketing is where we focus on what our customers are passionate about and connect with our customers through those passions. Jeff Warnick and I, in this episode, discuss how his company has successfully implemented passion marketing, credibility marketing, and other tectonic shift marketing strategies. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. Tell me about yourself, your career, and your home run successes that you've had. I don't, I don't think I've had any home runs. I think it's a series of singles and doubles, probably. Yeah. But I'm certainly happy to, to start back at the beginning. So I graduated from, from BYU-Idaho uh, with a degree in marketing. And I went to work for a very small, privately held company. In the, and they sold building materials. And so um, I went to go work for them in a sales capacity. Did a lot of... Uh, very, very interesting things. I think working for a small company, you get to wear a lot of hats. So I was doing some marketing. And then uh, for a number of reasons, I decided to, to get out of that industry and into another industry. And so um, that took me to the, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I started out in a sales capacity uh, with Bristol-Myers Squibb. I've been here for 14 years now. So I uh, held a number of roles from sales to sales training, where I came in and was training our new hires, uh, sales leadership, operational type roles. And then for about the past eight years, I've been uh, a marketer. So working um, specifically on our cancer products at, at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Health services company, pharmaceutical manufacturer, in that our customers tend to be people who unfortunately are not having a great day, uh, specifically in the cancer space. Um, so definitely rewarding though where we've seen the progress we still have a lot of work to do but uh, specifically right now I, I actually just started a new role where I work a wide capacity so I'm a global marketing for a couple of our, our big products um, Bristol Myers again in the cancer space have you worked with anything that's recurring revenue I mean and this is this is what's tough for the purposes of, of this because uh, recurring revenue in my line of work means that people are sick. So we don't like to think of people as, as recurring, recurring revenue streams because uh, that means that unfortunately they're, they're not being cured or they're still ill with whatever they're ill with. So we don't, we don't really look at it in that regards. Um, but in certain types of, with certain types of medical conditions like diabetes, for example, yeah. that would end up being a recurring revenue stream. Yeah, okay. it certainly is. And, and I would say that, you know, cancer overall, we're, we're trying to evolve to, to that sort of a mindset where because of the nature of it, you hope that we make progress and we're able to cure certain types of cancer. But at the very least, the baby steps that we're taking are moving it more towards a chronic condition where you see patients who, uh, for one disease, say, that I've worked in uh, called chronic myeloid leukemia. So 
the type of leukemia that was that was fatal uh, a number of years ago, and now patients are managed by taking one pill a day, um, similar to diabetes, to, to use your example of, it's managed as a chronic condition. The patients are still living with cancer, um, but you have patients that are alive 20, 20 years after being diagnosed um, with this that are alive and, and living a relatively normal life. I've always thought of a phrase like chronic condition being a bad thing, but yeah, you, you've shined a lot have, of light on that. If the yeah, other option, when you have cancer, yeah, yeah. yeah the alternative is, is the, it's terminal. any of them would trade a chronic condition for, for the alternative. Yeah, for sure. Upgrade. Interesting. Okay. So recurring revenue does play a part in the healthcare industry where people deal with chronic conditions. Yeah. From, from the business perspective, if they are going to be dealing with a chronic condition that is not able to be healed yeah. at present, um, tell me about the benefits to a business to be able to have a recurring revenue stream. How does that help a health organization to have recurring revenue streams built in? Yeah, I think any of the, any of the health or healthcare companies, um, I think I, I would speak to a specifically pharmaceuticals, but you even think about how uber competitive it is when you go to see your physician. Um, these physicians are competing with each other over patients. Um, they're offering additional bells and whistles, same day appointments, putting your charts online so you can go and um, look at them there. So recurring patients going in to see the same physician will be the same as the, the dynamic that you're describing. So the benefit for recurring patients is that we feel like they can live a better life by being on the medicine. So certainly empirically, you know, taking blood pressure, blood pressure medication, if you have high blood pressure, taking um, diabetes, you know, all the medications to manage that condition, uh, taking the medication, you're, you're much better off than the alternative of not taking it. It's unfortunate that you're sick and that you're not doing well, but um, you are, you know, affected by one of those conditions. We strongly encourage patients to do it again, you know, and this is where it gets a little different in the way that we look at the business versus maybe if I was selling, you know, Xerox or copy machines in that we encourage patients to stay on the medication because we feel like it's, they're going to have a better life because it reduces mortality, it reduces side effects, it reduces all those things. I don't, you know, certainly internally there's those conversations on financially because we were a publicly held company, you know, we have shareholders that we're responsible to just like, uh, any other company, but we tend to not look at it in dollars and cents. We look at it in patients, you know, and how we're impacting patients' lives by them staying on therapy. That makes yeah. Sense. Okay. Uh, one of the other tectonic shifts is uh, credibility marketing, uh, where instead of going to the world and telling the world how awesome we are, yeah. right, we try to find other credible sources to tell our potential clients that we do a good job, that our products are great. What have you guys done from a marketing perspective to, to establish credibility so that people trust your organization and trust the products you, you provide? Yeah, credibility is huge. You think about it again, coming back to you're talking not just dollars and cents, but you're talking something that's very intimate to people being their personal health or the personal health of a loved one. And so, um, physicians are very careful with how they make decisions. These are individuals that go to a whole lot of school. They spend a whole lot of time being trained to make the decisions that they make. And so 
Um, it, it is not, it's a very educated population that we are, you know, um, promoting our products to. Again, you know, like the physicians, <clears throat> it, there's no replicating um, speaking to someone else who's in exactly your condition or your situation. So, and this is for any sort of, you know, um, health challenges that people may have. Again, runs the gamut from high blood pressure to all the way being someone who, who has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, stage four metastatic cancer. Um, the first thing that they want to do is go and they want to talk to people that have been in their shoes that have had that same experience. And so um, managing the, the patient experience for patients that are put on your product is very important. We, we need to make sure that they have the information that they need, uh, that they're getting the support that they need all the way from, you know, the what to expect while being on the drug to everything else um, where, you know, uh, copay assistance cards, reimbursement support, you know, side effect management, what to look for, what to talk to your doctor about. All of those play into the patient experience, but then that patient experience can play into a broader as patient-patient interactions. Again, the internet has facilitated that. So those are two big areas where I think, you know, we put a lot of effort in getting that peer-to-peer HCP-to-HCP experience, but also the patient-to-patient -patient experience. Love it. Uh, how has COVID changed the way that you've had to operate your business? Um, well, promotional, in the, pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical space, you essentially have uh, maybe three customer segments. You've got the physicians, you've got the patients, and then you have the healthcare system, we'll say, which would include payers, um, uh, insurance companies. Um, those would be the three kind of primary promotional segments that you would say. So you think about COVID, um, the insurance companies were still going, you know, if, if not more than they were before. Patients, it was highly disruptive um, because you had a lot of hospitals that were funneling a lot of efforts towards COVID, um, even away from treating cancer patients, which you would think that they would hold that sacred. You have somebody who's, who's got, you know, cancer, it's a terminal illness, but you're, you know, there were oncologists um, that were having to cover call, you know, in the COVID ward to be able to, to, to manage the situation um, in surgery, especially where I'm at, I'm in Northeast with New York City being hit so hard um, and a lot of the surrounding areas. So it was disruptive to our HCP customers, um, even or patients. Um, again, you know, and, and then again, these are, these are cancer patients. And so do they wanna risk going out of the house and going into a hospital or into a treatment center where they know there could be sitting in the chair next to them waiting to check in someone that has COVID. And again, the stakes are much higher for for these patients when, when they get sick um, relative to, to you and I. Talk a, lot, a little bit about that, about how you market something that is conquering bad instead of marketing, marketing something that is good, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, and it is interesting because you're, I mean, having a, a physical product that is not really physical, I mean, you don't have all the time the instant gratification like you know you don't have people waiting in line like when a new iphone comes out you know because everybody's so excited nobody's waiting in line to get cancer or yeah. get chemotherapy although they do have to wait in the waiting room so you're absolutely right you see this uh 
Well, I, I would argue that there is no more passionate um, market than healthcare. Just think about uh, a loved one. We've all been impacted by someone who's been diagnosed with cancer. And look at what sort of uh, resources, and when I say resource, probably time is the most important one to a patient who has cancer. Um, and uh, very second to that would be restoring some semblance of, of normalcy to their life. You always hear about people say the new normal, you know, um, and the new normal oftentimes means a, a worse version of normal than what I had before. <laughs> you know, people talk about 2020 and the new normal with COVID, and it's basically like I have to adapt to something that um, is suboptimal. And so the passion around self-preservation, life preservation, but the passion you can ignite, not just in a cancer patient, but in the loved ones that surround them. And you see that when that happens, they mobilize and there's nothing more passionate than facing the, the possibility of losing a loved one or your own life. And so physicians also, there was some really interesting research I did as a, as a young marketer um, and it was kind of like the sort of thing where you have, they lay back on the couch, you dim the lights and you're like, okay, talk about a place, you know, where you're happy, you know? And I'm like, what is this? Nonsense? You know, I came to do some marketing, you know, this is market research that we're doing. But what was really interesting is when you tap into those emotions, those very powerful, incredible emotions um, of physicians that they don't often they don't often rise to the surface, but they're always below the surface of why they became a doctor, um, why they became an oncologist, um, why they make the decisions that they do, what's underlying, you know, all of that. Almost without fail, every single one of them go back to, well, when I was seven, my mom died of breast cancer. Um, or when I was 13, I had a best friend who had brain cancer and I felt helpless and there was nothing I felt like I could do. So the emotion, harnessing those passions and figuring out why it is, okay, so how can you tie the emotional state that's always under the surface, that passion in people who are very, you know, these are people who went to, after graduating high school, 12 to 18 additional years of school. They chose to do that. Um, and so they're, they're, they, and again, people who, have their their customer base turns over on an almost yearly basis. You think about that. What what it would take to be an oncologist where almost every single patient you see will unfortunately succumb to their disease within three to five years of you meeting them. This is not your primary care doctor, you know, where they maybe have one patient die a year. Um, and it's tragic. These are people that are used and accustomed to this. And how do they, how do they put that in a corner? So, but, you know, understanding what drives them, what is their passion in helping people in helping restore some sense of normalcy. And if they can't cure them or get them to, I keep using oncology examples because that's what I know. Um, but it, it could be anything. How do I make your life better? You know, how do I either give you more time or make the time that you have better? Um, and we heard that time and time again. Those were the things. That was the passion. That was what they found personally fulfilling. And that's what patients want too. You know, when you really take it down, if you're a cancer patient, my first response is I want more time. I need more time. Uh, I'm running out of time. You know, my daughter's getting married next year. 
Uh, my kid's graduating from, from high school. I need to be there. And then if unfortunately we're not able to deliver more time, they want better quality of time for what they have remaining. Um, and that's what oncologists do. That's what they do. And that's what we hope to help assist them with, you know, with our therapeutics, but drugs are only one part of that equation. You know, that's worth whatever, whatever you have to pay for that. It's yeah. worth it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Talk about getting that data really fast. Um, you have, you talked about doing one-on-one -on -one interviews with doctors. What did you do in those one-on-one -on -one interviews that helped you pull out the true uh, reasons why they did what they did, the motives why they did what they did? Um, I think you need to disassociate people um, from their daily life. Uh, I think when you give, so it would be very easy to walk in and talk to a doctor and say, okay, here's a patient case study. What would you do? How would you treat this patient? You know, and that would be very comfortable for them because that's what they do every, every day of their lives. Um, just like it would be really easy for a loved one to come in and, and talk to you about, hey, you know, we need to buy a car or those decisions that you make as part of a, you know, being alive and being a human and having a family. And, um, but when you, you take someone out of their their element. When you uh, have neurons and synapses in their brain firing that they weren't expecting to fire. So when I'm a, a, an, a doctor and I come in to participate in market research or I come in and talk with this marketing dude at BMS, um, there's certain expectations that I have coming into that interview that they're going to ask me this, that they're going to do this. Oh, are you using our product? Oh, do you like it? You know, you have the patience. But when you come in and say, so tell me about why you became an oncologist, you know, or help me understand. Um, I know that, you know, we work with you, but what more can we both do to, to help patients? Um, I feel like there's things that, um, that, that I feel like we can do more, you know, or first of all, before we get into any business, I want to thank you for what you're doing. Um, because all of us have loved ones and it's more than a profession. It's, it's a calling, you know, what you do. Um, you, you touch some part of their brain that wasn't expecting to be tickled. It wasn't expected to be touched. You're having synapses that are firing that weren't that they weren't expecting. And so you take someone outside of their comfort zone and you put them in a situation where now they have to listen. Now you have me, you know? And I think that's all the disruptive. Disruption is not a shock factor. Disruption is giving someone something unexpected, but appealing and intriguing that then you can follow up uh, and get, get the truth because you have established that and it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. It's hard in our industry, harder in our industry. I'm envious of, I have friends that, you know, work in marketing and they manage, you know, pies, you know, they sell pies. <laughs> they sell pies in the grocery store, Marie Calendar pies or whatever, yogurt. And they can do so many cool things, you know, um, where we're heavily restricted, heavily regulated industry. Um, but again, the commonality is um, understanding the why. And I think that you, when you come in and you, you disrupt someone's path of thinking, um, uh, at least it's been, 
it's been one thing that I've done that has helped me get to the bottom and get to the truth of, of what they're really thinking. I also, you know, we talk to a lot of, for whatever reason, people on the East Coast tend to be very candid with how they feel about you and tell you the truth, you know, whereas when we lived in Texas, everybody was great all the time and it took a little while to, to peel back the onion on how people really feel. Yeah. Did you ever do focus groups with multiple doctors together or surveys or was that, is it too hard to get a doctor to do those kinds of things? No, we do it. We do it a lot actually. And it's really interesting. We have to be very careful with how we pick who we pick because again, you think about how doctors are trained, always trained to catch them up. That's their entire training. If you sum up medical school, residency, all of that, there's always someone trying to trip you up and test your knowledge, you know, because your people's lives are going to be in your hands. Um, you're not just going to be a marketer at a pharmaceutical company. You're literally going to have people's lives in your hands. And so your good is not good enough until it is. And you have to continue to test it. And so that, that has been bred into them. And so it's challenging if you get one person in the room who's an alpha to get uh, true responses from the other folks in the room. Um, but we, yeah, we do that quite often. We do. And that, that is more challenging to tap into that because again, physicians don't want to speak about why they became an oncologist and get emotional in front of other oncologists, you know, or other physicians. Uh, they'll default to analytical mode, just like we do. You know, we're three other people on the line here, you know, it, it may be a different sort of conversation when you're opening up to a broader group. You connected with your target audience of doctors, the oncologists, through their passions, through yeah. their level 10 passions. And then as a result, you were able to use that messaging to be able to turn around and market to oncologists through the level 10 passion. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did it through them as, as people. Um, so we had previously um, promoted to professional oncologists, you know, again, through the use of analytics and lots of charts and tables. And we, we still do that. But again, similar to how we did it in the research of, you know, going in is your entry into the story. And if you just think about it of having a sales representative go in and talk to a doctor, it would feel very formulaic to have them going, hey, doctor, I've got some information I want to share with you. Here's the data. Here's the patient population. But to have them go in and start to say, how valuable is it? You know, how exciting is it that we're in a space now where you could sit down and have a conversation with patients that looks like this, you know? Tell me the last time you had a conversation like that. Um, tell me how that made you feel, you know, and going in with a little bit more of an emotive um, based on what we learned in the research, very respectful, um, but emotional nonetheless. Um, and I think our assumption going into that was that, oh, they're not going to buy it. You know, they're not going to be swayed by an emotional appeal um, when paired with analytics. And it's not true. I mean, again, that's where I come back to what I said before that physicians at the end of the day are there, um, they make decisions. Um, they have more gating filters they go through. They have a lot more education, highly intelligent. But and their time is a lot more valuable. <laughs> a lot more valuable. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still people. They're still yeah. people. Um, and what drives them is not too different than you and I. They want to make a difference. They want to help people. Um, and they're in a position, a very unique position to do it. Covering the insight is so incredibly important. And then how you leverage that, because you also can't, if you know what, it, what drives people's passions, 
Um, one other thing that we found is it's a nuanced way to how you serve that up to them, you know? So if I know you really like um, ice cream because of this and this, um, it typically won't work if I come back to you and say, here's ice cream because of this and this, you know? It's how do I tell that story to you so that you're like, yes. So much more powerful than just a pitch. What do you think is the, the secret to communicating that back to them? Stories are great. I think the secret is in uh, finding a parallel track to that passion. So what is the, what is the bridger? So if you think about like, um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Inception, but you have to have a thread between where you're taking them and where they, like I said, you don't, you can't serve it right up to them. Here's your passion. You love chocolate ice cream. We know that about you. Here's chocolate ice cream. Buy it. But it could be um, if I'm selling you chocolate ice cream because I know there's something in your past that had you do that, you know, there's nothing better than sitting down to have ice cream with your grandson on a hot summer day. You yes. know, you serve it up as that emotional driver, you know, because the passion is not the ice cream. The passion is the experience associated with the ice cream. But what is my, what is the experience I associate with the taste of the ice cream? That's the driver. That's the hook. You know, anybody, you can go to any, any grocery store and buy ice cream, but why you like ch chocolate ice cream is because your grandpa used to take you there every summer, you know, yeah. or your first memory of the, the first time your dad took you to a movie, you stopped for a chocolate cone on the way home, you know, yeah. um, the highest level passions are the emotion attached to the decision, not the decision, you know? And that's the mistake we make is that we often just go with the decision because that's what we get paid for. We get paid for your decision, um, but the insight lies in the passion that drives the decision. Thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. Here are some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, passion marketing is a great way to make sure we are focusing on our customers and their core wants and needs. Number two, we can get great results if we mix passion marketing with analytics. Number three, one way to connect with customers is to disassociate them by taking them outside of their everyday life. Then we can get to the truths behind what they're passionate about. Number four, focus on the passion attached to a customer's decision, not the decision itself. Number five, use story to package that passion. Number six, focus on how a product or service can improve a customer's life. Number seven, build credibility by giving customers all the necessary information they need to make a decision and by helping them connect with other customers. If you enjoyed this interview and want to connect with Jeff, we've included a link to his LinkedIn profile on the blog post for this episode. Thanks for joining us for this episode today and best wishes on your monetization journey. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.